the views and comments expressed on the Space Show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The Space Show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the Space Show are primarily for educational purposes. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday Space Show program. I'm your host for today, David Livingston, and thank you very much for tuning in. This is a full-length Space Show program, just letting you know up front. Um, and if you do want to talk with our guest or uh, send in an email, still I ask you to make sure we're still broadcasting, so don't wait until the 11th hour. Um, call us before then, okay? And our toll-free number is 866-687-7223. And email, of course, drspace at thespaceshow.com. As for a couple of other quick announcements, uh, upcoming on Tuesday is Dr. Eligar Sadeh. He's returning. And uh, Eligar has a new STEM student outreach simulation experience by taking, I think, their high school kids into the desert. I'm not really sure, but um, I was going to meet up with him in Las Vegas and then his students for one of his trips or experiences showed up and um, we never got together and he goes someplace for some kind of a camping Mars simulation trip in the desert. So that's what Eligar wants to tell us about. And on Friday, uh, Hotel Mars is yet to be uh, identified and Hotel, excuse me, June 16th, Friday, David Will Witkowski, he's an IEEE engineer and top person, and he's talking about the LEO communication needs and infrastructure needs in space, because all of this is insufficient at this time. And then there is no program on Sunday for Father's Day. So that's what we have for the coming week, everybody. And once again for today, our toll-free number, 866-687-7223. Our guest um, is, uh, has been with us before, is Dr. Nick Kanas, and he is um, uh, a psychiatrist. He was trained at Stanford, uh, and he did his psychiatry residency at UCSF. He's Professor Emeritus at UCSF in San Francisco. He has over 220 professional publications, many awards, um, he's written many different books, and he has a great interest in space. And he was with us before on one of his uh, space books. And today he has um, a textbook-like, but to me a very important book. It's the kind of book that we would want sitting on our desk for available research. It's titled Behavioral Health and Human uh, Interactions in Space. And... Um, 
it, I've been going through it. I haven't had enough time to read it because it's about 450 pages. But uh, it's amazing, and he's got conclusions for almost every segment of behavioral activity one could have in space. So you can check his background out. His bio is on our Space Show website. Before we start the program, remember, please, that we are a nonprofit 501c3 with one giant leap, and uh, we are listener dependent. So, uh, all of you who are listening to this show, we need your support to keep the space show going and to have great guests on like we have today. So, PayPal is the easiest way to support us, and there's a link to PayPal in the upper right of our homepage, which is thespaceshow.com. And um, for those of you who like to use Zelle for contributions, our email address is david at one one giant leap foundation dot org. And then if you're interested in mailing a check, it's made payable to One Giant Leap Foundation, and it mails to our address in Las Vegas, which is on the PayPal button and also our website. But if you need assistance, email me please at drspacedr. S-P-A-C-E at thespaceshow.com and uh, remember if you do donate because we're a non-profit if you pay U.S. federal taxes you get a contribution uh, tax deduction for your gift uh, we also have sponsors and uh, I call them advertisers billboard advertisers uh, Northrop Grumman, the Space Foundation Astrox, AIAA Celestis the National Space Society, and the billboard advertiser, Dr. Heim Benaroya, with his great books on lunar development and habitats. Remember, if you buy his books through our banner ad, Amazon donates a portion of the purchase price uh, to us. At the end of the show, not so as not to take up time uh, from our guest, I will read the sponsor PR messages. Um, Dr. Kanas, welcome back to the Space Show. How are you? Good, David. Thank you. Nice to be back. Uh, and it's nice to have you back. So this this is really a, an incredible book, and uh, uh, it, it covers everything. I've gone through it in, in as much time as I've had since uh, I've been back from ISDC and then realizing I had some computer problems that had to be dealt with. Uh, but it, it really does answer and address almost anything I could think of in terms of space medicine, both on orbit and uh, beyond orbit. Um, why did you write this book and sort of introduce us to it? Um, well, this book is, in, in a sense, a culmination of uh, over 50 years of work in the space business. I actually began as a student, a medical student, uh, doing an elective at NASA, uh, but even before then, I was a teaching assistant for a summer space institute. This is at UCLA, uh, and uh, in, in, in that, I also did research with somebody who had NASA funding, Tony Kales, in sleep research. So I had been exposed to NASA-related work uh, even before. And uh, when I did an elective in, in 1970, I went to Johnson and I wrote a monograph, which is my my task based on uh, simulation work in the Antarctic and submarines about a theoretical long-duration mission to Mars. And so that got me started. And over the years, I've been studying and researching. I was fortunate to 
I guess, uh, some uh, involvement with the European Space Agency to do a study, and then I was a NASA-funded PI, principal investigator, for over 15 years uh, doing work with astronauts uh, in space. And so I, I, I want to pull all this information together um, uh, well, I, well, I still have the, uh, the cognition to do so, uh, <laughs> the ability to do so, into a way that I thought would be useful for uh, the next generation, if you will. And so I, I did. I, I spent a great deal of time uh, researching and updating uh, and reviewing literature and putting this thing together. I, I've written several other books before. One I think I mentioned before to you, uh, Humans in Space, The Psychological Hur Hurdles, uh, a few years ago, which is a kind of a popular uh, book, uh, a shorter version of this, uh, this book, uh, not nearly as complete, but has all the essence. And I, I, but I wanted to pull it together into a, a major book. And Springer, my publisher, said, you know, you ought to do it as a textbook series because we can reach a lot of students, we can reach a lot of college-type people, uh, and that's the format that they wanted to use. So I did, and it includes the two big major areas that I've been interested in, which is the psychology of people in space and how they interact with each other, the human interaction. So the title behavioral health is sort of the current buzzword for the space psychology, and human interactions is how teams behave. Uh, ties it all together into those two big areas of uh, behavior of crews in space. Now, I, I had the opportunity as well to go a little bit beyond and to speculate based on what we know on orbit, some of the research that we've done in our lab, but also others, uh, to the moon and to, and to Mars. And Mars has some unique uh, stressors, and I wanted to include that. So there's a chapter on uh, issues to worry about going to the moon psychologically and interpersonally, and the same kind of issues to look at uh, going to Mars. And I even had a little bit of a speculation about colony formation on both the lunar and the Martian surface. Um, you, you said something a few minutes ago that caught my attention. This is not part of the discussion we had before the show started. But you, you said you you know, wanted to pull all this together while you, you still had the cognitive ability. So I don't know how old you are, and I'm not asking, but so let's take my age as, a, as, a, as the model here at newly turned 77. So um, we all know that there are cognitive issues in space. If I wanted to do something and had the capability to go to space, would I do better cognitively in, in low-Earth orbit or maybe going to the moon to a workstation or maybe to, the, to Mars on a workstation or staying here on Earth um, and fighting uh, age-appropriate uh, cognitive decline? Or am I stuck no matter where I am? I guess there's two issues uh, maybe I'm hearing in your question. I'll deal with, with the short answer first. Uh, there is some evidence that returning astronauts who have been in space several times may have uh, some cognitive decline earlier on Earth after returning, but it's not complete yet. Uh, there's some evidence that maybe the um, – uh, cognitive abilities of astronauts are just fine when they return, but that they may accelerate some of the aging process. Uh, it's uh, a very interesting area that's being researched a lot about the effect of microgravity on aging, and it, it, it's kind of up in the air still. 
So it's hard to answer that question specifically. There are some other things. For example, there's retinal changes that seem to occur as a, 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 being in space that leads to some visual problems. It's of great some concern to NASA, and they're studying that as well. In terms of being in space, it's a complicated answer. I think the the best way I can say it is, yes, there are some short-term cognitive changes in space that occur, maybe in memory or in, in perception, but the vast majority kind of stabilize whether the astronaut is able to call into uh, being uh, his or her um, very brilliant and bright and, and flexible uh, personality backgrounds to compensate or not. But people generally do uh, pretty well in long-term missions. People have been in space now. I think there have been five people that have been in space longer than a year. Uh, the record is 14 months. And they seem to do fine in the long run. They seem to compensate. The cognition goes along. There used to be uh, astronauts like to call some, some of this uh, the space stupids or the space fog, uh, which is a kind of a confusion that astronauts sometimes get in microgravity. But they seem to compensate, and uh, it has not been a major problem. There are tests occasionally that they give astronauts on a computer to test their cognition before a major activity like a spacewalk or so on, uh, but usually they're able to do okay on these. Uh, so it's, it's, microgravity seems to affect your cognitive ability in some dimensions, but usually you can compensate for it and continue and do your mission. What is what have you found to be the, both the individual and crew uh, psychiatric or psychological issues if they're on orbit, like a space station or maybe on a hotel or even a private space station, or going on to the moon? Are are the issues really different, or are they comparable? Um. Many of the issues that occur are things that have been also found on Earth. Uh, one way of thinking about it is that uh, you and I might do certain things on Earth. Uh, astronauts who might be smarter than us or more capable of dealing with stress or more ability also under more stressors. So when you look at them, you see similar phenomena on Earth and in space. In our study, uh, we, were we did two studies over 15 years. One was uh, astronauts and mission control personnel uh, and then during the shuttle Mir program. The Mir was the Russian space station that was up at the time that they were building the International Space Station. And then we did a follow-up study uh, on crew members and mission control people involved with the International Space Station. So we did two studies. And the areas we looked at uh, were mainly areas related to team and crew interactions. Uh, so we, uh, one thing we were interested in looking at, and we found similar results in both studies. Uh, the crew members were up for four to seven months. We had a total of, uh, of um, uh, 30 Americans and Russian astronauts and cosmonauts that we studied and uh, over 200 mission control people. We studied the mission control groups as well because we wanted to look at teams, not only in space, but teams on the ground of people who were active in the space program. So we studied them, and one of our hypotheses was that um, people had reported in the Antarctic that over the course of time of a, a, a long-term mission, 
after the halfway point, there'd be decrements that the crew members would get um, uh, depressed or the cohesion would drop in the group. Uh, it's called the third quarter phenomenon. And it goes like this. You're on a mission, say, for a year in the Antarctic. You get to the halfway point, and you say, oh, wow, I made it. I'm halfway there until I get home. And they say, wait a minute, I've got another half to go. And so what has been reported in the Antarctic was a drop in morale, some depression, other problems that psychologically uh, that occurred at that third quarter. So we were looking for this in our astronauts, both on the shuttle Mir and the ISS. And by the way, it's, it's the halfway point psychologically. So in an eight-month mission, the halfway point is four months. In a one-year mission, the halfway point is six months. The bottom line is we did not find evidence for it in space. Uh, we didn't find any significant drop after the halfway point in our astronauts and cosmonauts subjects in either the Mir or the International Space Station. They kind of moved along on all the measures of depression. We looked at depression, we looked at anxiety, we looked at team behavior, we looked at a number of variables, and they were pretty much constant. We think one of the reasons was that they were communicating with people on the ground and getting support with people on the ground. When they felt a little blue, a little homesick, they could talk to someone and it would boost their morale. Plus, the space agencies, American and Russian side both, were cognizant of things like this happening. So they would send up resupply ships with surprise presence, things like that, to boost the morale, to kind of keep them going. Uh, I might say later, if you're interested, we don't know what's going to happen with Mars because you can't do this kind of thing in a long-distance mission like Mars where you have a time delay in communication and you can't send a supply rocket in two or three days, you've got to wait seven months. So the coping strategies may not be quite as good. Anyway, we did not find evidence of a time effect. We did find on the Mir a mission that was brand new for the Americans. They'd never been in a long-term mission on a Russian space station before. But the first week or two, there was some anxiety and tension by Americans because they were getting acclimated to being up in space with two Russian cosmonauts in a, in a vehicle that they were not familiar with. Um, so that's one thing. We didn't find a time effect. We're also looking at displacement. Uh, you, your readers or your listeners probably have experienced displacement when your boss tells you something that you don't like. It's hard to tell your boss that he's a jerk uh, or she's wrong. Uh, because, you know, they, they run your, pay your salary. So you go home and you yell at your spouse or you, you, you scream at the dog. You displace your anger and tension away from the person to whom it should be directed to someone who's innocent because they're safer. So we predicted that when the crew members had high tension on board on our measures, when they rated themselves as being high in tension, high in anxiety, and so on, during those weeks, they raise themselves on a week-to-week basis. Uh, during those times, they would rate the crew, the mission control uh, support as not being very, very strong. So high tension on board would correlate with low perception of uh, support from the ground. And, in fact, we found that, and it was very robust finding. And all six of the negative measures that we studied uh, all six of them correlated negatively and statistically significantly with a perception that the crew members were not supporting them. 
so we found good evidence of this displacement phenomenon. Why is it important? Because sometimes mission control doesn't know why the crew members are angry and frustrated at them, but in fact they may be frustrated at them for good reason, but they also could be frustrated at them because they're having tension on board. So that raises everyone's attention to this phenomenon. The first thing we looked at was leadership. Uh, a good leader has two qualities. They, they direct their team to do the job and keep on, on track, and they also pay attention to the morale, they, uh, the morale of their team to make sure they're running, the morale is uh, contented. And we predict that perception of the cohesion on the small group of the crew member or the mission control would correlate with uh, perception that the leader was a good team leader and a good support leader. And, in fact, we found that, that the, especially the support leadership role, how much the commander, the boss, the, uh, the team leader on the ground or the command center in space paid attention to morale and was sensitive to the morale of the crew, that would lead to high cohesion, and, in fact, we did find that. But we found that as well. We also found some, uh, uh, some um, American-Russian differences. Uh, the Americans uh, uh, in space tended to uh, rate the, um, the uh, anxiety on board a little higher. Uh, let me think of that for a second. Yeah, the Americans scored higher in work pressure than the Russians did. And we think that's because in the American space program, there's a lot more attention being paid to details and paper, not paperwork, but paying attention to things on board than in the Russians, and that they were more under pressure to do a number of tasks. Whereas the Russians scored significantly higher in overall tension than the Americans during our two studies. And I think there's a lot of reasons why the Russians feel under more pressure. Uh, one of them is their salary. In the American program, you're a civil servant, you're paid a salary to do your job, and that's that. In the Russian program, if you do a good job, you get a bonus. If you don't do a good job, you get docked in your pay. And so there's always some pressure uh, about performing that the Russians were under, and we think that's why they scored higher intention than their American counterparts. You, you have an email from Todd, uh, who's in San Diego. And he says, um, your findings, I'm wondering if um, companies or governments that are planning to send people into space or onto the moon or maybe just in orbit, are they paying attention to these findings and incorporating them in both their ground and crew training, or is that not showing up yet? Um, the... When we did our, our, our first study on Mir, this was, these were done in the uh, end of the 90s and early 2000s. And um, we, this was followed by the ISS study. Even though one study followed the other, I don't think the word had really hit uh, for the International Space Station study to make a big difference. I think since then, though, the, especially the psychologists and the medical staff that are involved with the American and Russian space programs have incorporated many of the findings uh, that we did as well as other people into their briefings and into their um, support programs. And so I think the answer is yes, that uh, I like to think that people pay attention to the work we've done, especially when they're paying for it. Um, I think the answer is, by and large, uh, the medical psychological support staff have paid attention and are incorporating that into their training. Uh, and astronauts are getting briefed on some of these issues. 
uh, and mission control is more aware of some things like displacement and so on. I can't speak for the private programs. So far, the private programs have been up and down. Uh, they go up and they experience weightlessness and they come down. Uh, there's just been that one that they spent uh, a period of time in space. And the training for the suborbital flights privately uh, are not as certainly as extensive as the astronaut training. And I don't think the briefing uh, needs to uh, account for a lot of these issues because, you know, the whole thing is over in, in an hour. The, um, as we get into orbital uh, private, though, I think uh, private missions by companies, I think that some of these issues uh, hopefully will be incorporated uh, and, and uh, the, the uh, space participants, I hate to use for tourists, because some of the people who go up actually do jobs, uh, when they go up in space to the International Space Station uh, and so on, that they will have had some of this briefing. There have been uh, seven uh, people who have gone in Russian program and paid for it to spend some time in, in space on the Russian program. And uh, I don't know, though, if they, how much of our uh, information they've incorporated into their private uh, training. So um, jumping a little forward, maybe a little out of, uh, out of order, but um, a favorite topic on the space show is space settlement. And a subtopic of that that is a favorite topic is um, um, free space or orbital space settlement, like an O'Neillian colony. And then taking that to, because you can spin and, and have 1G, this is the perfect place to have children and have families in sort of a normal settlement in space. Um, what could you extrapolate from MIR and ISS to uh, the dynamics of a group living in a free space, spinning hotel like an O'Neill colony, uh, wanting to live there and wanting to have kids. Are all bets off, or is your research applicable, or would you have to get some models going and, and try to get samples and see what's happening, and could you do that here on Earth? Well, in, in, uh, in my book, I, I did spend a little bit of time. Uh, I focused on lunar and Martian colonies on, on the planet, on the, on the uh, ground. But I did spend a little time uh, reviewing the, the, the O'Neill cylinder you mentioned in uh -huh. Stanford Park, which is another kind of a pre-frozen colony in space. Um, the issue is, what is more expensive to do? Uh, there are real advantages to having uh, colonies that are around the Earth that are in facilities like uh, O'Neill or the Stanford Taurus, but they're expensive to build. Uh, a lot of building goes on. Uh, they're big. Uh, they're, they're, it's quite a cost. And I think the, the, um, the trend is not to go this route, but to go to colonies on the lunar surface itself and maybe the Martian surface. The advantage of these colonies is it has a couple of advantages. If you can finance them and build them and take care of the engineering, is first of all, you can spin them so you can have gravity. I'm a big fan of gravity. It's just that the engineers keep telling everybody that it's too expensive and they can't do it. Uh, you know, it'd be nice to send a ship to Mars that's rotating. 
and not have to have people spend seven months going to Mars, you know, in Mars of gravity. Um, we don't know the effect of gravity for a two to two and a half year Mars mission, for example. Um, one can argue, well, okay, you're weightless for seven months. We've been weightless for a year, 14 months around the Earth. People can tolerate it if they exercise. And then you land on Mars, and Mars has some gravity. And But we don't know if it's restorative. We don't know if some of the bone loss and the muscle atrophy can be changed or altered or even uh, turned back by, um, you know, 30% gravity of Mars. And then you're on Mars for a while, then you come back seven months. So if Mars is restorative, uh, and if you can do a study looking at partial gravity, uh, which is hard to do on Earth because we have one gravity here, um, then if it's restorative, you can send somebody weightless to Mars, and then they get better on Mars being under that gravity, and then they come back and they should be okay. So, but the advantage of these, these cylinders are you're under gravity. The other advantage is you're, you can build it within the, the, the Van Allen belt, so you don't have to worry so much about radiation um, because you're close enough to Earth that some of the, the radiation in space doesn't hit you. Uh, and you can have big colonies, whatever advantage that is. So there are some advantages, but the cost, I think, in engineering is just so enormous right now that I don't, I don't see us going that, that way, that route. In terms of babies, uh, we know. Uh, we know of uh, studies done on, on um, I think, frogs. Uh, basically, microgravity is not, not so good for fetuses. And so you have a high number of fetal malformations in animals that have been weightless in space. Um, you don't have to talk too much about radiation because the studies have been done on orbit where radiation is such a big problem. But the fetuses don't develop well. So right now, having a pregnancy is not a good idea based on what we know uh, uh, in microgravity. And based on what we know about radiation, it may not be so good either in a habitat somewhere where you have a lot of radiation. So if you're going to have babies, you need to have some kind of gravity and you need to have uh, some kind of protection from radiation. Um, most women, uh, females that go into space right now, are on some kind of birth control pill, either for menstrual cycle control or for control osteoporosis, which is a problem with microgravity. So uh, they're on some kind of birth protection anyway, uh, but the idea of having babies is not too good unless you have a system and construct a gravity situation free of radiation. How do you know they work in in space the way they do here on Earth, those medications? Well, they do control menstrual flow, and that's observable. Okay. And the osteoporosis rate is fine um, for the women that are on birth control pill over what they'd expect them to be um, based on, you know, just normal microgravity effects on bone. Um, so, taking your studies on ISS and MIR, how much of uh, what you have found out would be applicable on a on a lunar colony or a, a lunar settlement or or even some kind of a lunar workstation where you know the astronauts may stay there for a year and, and then rotate off? Uh, can you extrapolate a lot from uh, from MIR and ISS to the Moon? Um, I actually, in, in, in the book, I, I deal with both those subjects, and I use three sources of information to extrapolate. 
and do the best I could. One source was uh, actually science fiction, um, and I think science fiction raises a number of issues that can um, – I write science fiction, by the way. I've written three novels and, uh, that, that are out, and so I'm very interested in science fiction as a, as a um, uh, maybe a harbinger for ideas anyway for the future. Um, and so anyway, I, I use the the moon is a harsh mistress as my um, – prototype in the book for uh, a lunar colony. Now, there's some caveats there because in, in that book, which is an excellent book, Heinlein's book, um, it's a penal colony, and so there's some things that probably are. It's more like an Australia de- uh, development than, than what may happen. But there are a lot of interesting things there that, that have to do with the sociology of the, the colony. Um, uh, for example, there are more men than women, and so it leads to a kind of a, a, a family unit that is uh, multi-generational and is, uh, everybody kind of merges together to form men and women in a social boundary uh, to take care of the polyandry. Uh, they call them uh, uh, line families. And so you have a different kind of a social structure evolving as a result of this particular thing. Uh, but some of the issues there were the closest to the Earth. They had a lot of problems. The Earth wants the, the lunar colonists in this science fiction novel to they grow wheat under the ground. They want them mainly to supply them with wheat, and they don't give them enough money to pay for everything, so the colonists revolt in the story. And uh, so that teaches us maybe something about the dependence on the Earth and the control on the Earth that might occur in a lunar colony down the road um, uh, versus uh, the colonists wanting to be more independent. So I used some of that information to kind of factor in. The second thing I looked at literature uh, from Earth colonies. Uh, the fellow named Schwartz uh, examined 13 post-migration communities uh, on the Earth, mainly things like people that have migrated from Europe to the old, the New World, or people that have um, uh, that have been involved with um, migration in the in a, in a Polynesian area. And Schwartz decided there might be three phases of a typical colony formation that may give us some information about uh, what to expect in a colony here. Now, I'm talking about a colony. Initially, you're going to have, for example, an Artemis. You're going to have a base, and people are going to go from a rotating space station around the moon and Artemis down and back and forth to, to the moon, and they might go down for a month or two. Uh, but in time, I think this will start to grow. European Space Agency is predicting things like a moon village that may be economically based, where you have a colony expanding based on mining, and you'll so you have more and more people forming. So looking at that kind of a colony, uh, Schwartz's work has something to teach us. First of all, uh, he says that colonies, for example, in the New World or in the uh, Polynesian areas, uh, the first couple of years there's a pioneering phase where just survival is the key issue. Are we going to survive? Can we handle food and housing and, and taking care of uh, uh, the people with the elements? And so survival is the key area that is really important. Uh, then they go through a consolidation phase where they start, the colonies start to form social norms and institutions. They start deciding on what kind of government they want. They form, if anything, subgroups who may or may not agree with the majority. But you have institutions beginning to form within the colony uh, based as, as it's kind of coming together. Uh, this is followed, according to Schwartz, by stabilization. Uh, this is where you finally have resettlement worries about survival in the past. The colony is going to survive 
the population is growing, and you stabilize the norms into what norms you want to follow for the duration. You have the government set up finally. You're not experimenting so much, and you, you kind of are on your way. So this is the pioneering consolidation and stabilization phase over the first few years of a, of a colony base. Uh, economic issues play a role. Uh, think of the British East India Company, uh, kind of the tail wagging the dog in British colonization. They really were very important with a lot of the British colonies that were formed all over the world for economic reasons. Uh, there's mining, things to harvest on the moon. You get oxygen from the regolith. You might find magnesium. You might find other elements. And, and you can easily rocket them out of the moon because of the low gravity to Earth orbit to use back on Earth. So uh, mining might become an important area, and so might the economics. The colonies may end up being very, uh, very wealthy. Um, and then there's information from other colony experiences. For example, in Polynesia, some cultures encourage colonization. Uh, they support it where you have a stable leader, a stable person, that person has the resources to command the chief, uh, people to go out and colonize. So he supports it. Other areas where uh, the government's unstable, like on New Guinea, where people keep jockeying for power and you have governments changing all the time, uh, bold voyages and colonization is not so common. So uh, the colony formation down the road on the moon uh, may depend a lot on the host nation's and how stable they are. Um, some cultures encourage colony independence. Corinth had a group of colonies in, uh, uh, in southern Italy uh, and in Greece that uh, they encouraged them to be independent, versus the other colonies want, uh, I'm sorry, they, they encouraged them to be under the control of Corinth. So you had a colony, I think you had seven of them, and they had to be pretty much under the thumb of Corinth, government and politics. Uh, maybe the colony will be under the thumb on the moon of the different nations that, that set up the colonies. Um, so there's a lot to learn from Earth colonization history. The final thing are the studies we did, and I mentioned a few of the things found. Displacement, colonies that have stress and tension uh, internally, they may start blaming the Earth governments or the Earth uh, leaders for their problems, even though the problems are really intra-colonial. Uh, or the leader... Uh, who may be assigned to a colony early on by the government may not be very good at supporting uh, the morale of the colonists, and so that will create problems unless the leader is able to support the morale as well as send us your goods. So that's, those are the sources of information to start thinking about it. Uh -huh. And I developed a series of principles. That if you like, I can go over those. Sure, go ahead, and then I'll uh, come up with the, play, with the listener question. Go on with the principles. So, Okay. Well, first of all, I think that the, the, uh, on the moon, the colony may undergo its own unique development or can follow the patterns of Schwartz. Um, uh, hard to predict right now, but the idea is certainly of initially just figuring out how they're going to survive and set up their own norms is important. Uh, uh, because of its closeness, the lunar colony, though, will remain for a long time uh, dependent on the Earth and under, the, if you will, the thumb of the Earth. Um, this may not be the case in the Martian colony. Mars is so far away that once a colony gets established and begins to have some value in trade, they may seek independence more so from uh, the Earth uh, than uh, a lunar colony would. Um, what happens on the Earth 
politics or war would reverberate very directly with a lunar colony, maybe not so much so with a Martian colony. They may be more autonomous and able to develop independence sooner and identify as Martian, if you will. Uh, specialized groups may form their own colonies. You could have uh, a religious group hire an, uh, a private company to send their people and form a sub-colony on the moon uh, that is not necessarily directly dependent on the major colonies set up by them. So you can have these sub-colonies forming as well. Uh, economic needs can lead to, uh, again, a big driver like the British East India Company. Uh, you can have uh, companies setting up areas for mining rights that would be very important on the moon or Mars, and then that would set up uh, competitors to the major colonies that might be more related to the, the national origin. Uh, in time, people will go individually uh, and will start populating the colonies as individuals who may be initially millionaires or the money to pay to go to the lunar colony or the Martian colony, and they will start influencing what happens in the development. Tension I mentioned earlier, the colony can be displaced to the outgroup, that is, people on Earth, especially on the moon, which is very close. They might feel a lot of tension and pressure reverberating from uh, what happens on the Earth. Uh, and finally, uh, there might be a revolt. Um, uh, the, uh, both the, uh, the moon's harsh mistress and the red Mars, which I use as my uh, science fiction story for uh, the Martian colony, uh, develop an identity and want to revolt. Um, as many colonies on the Earth do uh, with a colonial uh, expansion from the home country and become their own entities. So we might see a lot of psychological and sociological shifts going on in these colonies as they develop over time. Uh, <clears throat> Sally is in Seattle and, and says if um, you're setting up some kind of colonies or settlements or workstations uh, in an area that uh, is high demand for different nationalities. Uh, how do your principles and how do the dynamics play out if the Chinese are nearby, the Russians are nearby, the Europeans are nearby, the U.S. is nearby, and maybe there's some interaction, maybe there isn't, but is the lunar activity influenced because so many nationalities are in the same area? Well, I think, I think Sally's raising a really important point uh, that's unclear right now because the legal ramifications are unclear. There have been treaties signed that most countries have agreed to about peaceful uses of the moon, uh, and that's really nice in principle. But then there's been specifics about how do we handle things like mining rights and things that not everyone has signed on to, like the United States and Russia and I don't think China. So it's up in the air how you establish territorial boundaries. Is it going to be like the Antarctic where you have your station and that's your station and you leave everybody alone? Uh, or is it going to be something more competitive because um, the possibilities for economic and even um, military uses? Right now, everybody wants to go to the South Pole around Shackleton Crater. Uh, why Shackleton Crater is uh, pretty much in the crater, it's dark, and they think there may be frozen water there. So you want to be there to mine the water 
you get the water, you can use that for fuel, you can use it to break it down for oxygen, you can use the water for, uh, uh, you know, to drink. Uh, and then the peaks around Shackleton are in the constant sunlight. So you can establish power generators using solar power around there and beam it down to support the colonies around Shackleton. So it very well, right now the American and under Artemis, the Artemis program, which is the American, European, Japanese, and supposedly Russian joint program, are used to send crews to the moon to set up Gateway, which is a, um, a space station or a relay station around the moon that you can use then to dock a ship that goes from the Earth to Gateway and then Gateway down to the moon and back, and in time, dock a vehicle that can then go on to Mars. Uh, right now, that program is looking at Shackleton, the area around Shackleton, South Pole. For the reasons I mentioned, water, power, constant daylight, but also constant cold where you might have frozen water. The problem is, even before Ukraine, the Russians were starting to feel that the program was too dominant by the Americans and was starting to back out. The Chinese, who have had their own space program for a number of reasons, uh, have allied more and more with the Russians. And so you have the Russian-Chinese more and more aligned together. Uh, you know, the Chinese have a space station. They have plans to go to the moon. Uh, and they also want to go to Shackleton. So we have a setup now where you've got a space race, if you will, and two competing blocks. You've got the Western and Japanese consortium under Artemis. Uh, and then you've got the certainly Chinese and maybe Chinese-Russian group uh, forming their own base around Shackleton. How they get along and where the boundaries are set up is unclear right now. Um, if you ever see the show uh, For All Mankind, uh, which is a very interesting show on uh, uh, streaming on uh, uh, Apple TV Prime, it's an alternate history. Basically, the Russians land on the moon first before we do, and at least the whole stack of things over the course of the three years. But one of the things that occurs is you have uh, competing bases uh, on the moon. And, uh, you know, and they have a military uh, implications, and they've got uh, sociological and mining implications. So a lot of the issues that Sally mentioned are raised in there. I don't have a good answer now because the governments have not sat down and specifically, other than generally we want to be peaceful and so on, planned how they're going to integrate and intermingle. And now they're both looking at the same relative turf, which is Shackleton, how they're going to uh, draw the lines there. You know, um, I just came back from the National Space Society ISDC conference and, and also on the space show, but other formats as well. Uh, space settlement, living in space, uh, traveling in space, mining, you know, working in space, even growing foods in space. These are all big topics. They, they weren't topics a few years ago, but they're big topics and they're, and they're growing in interest. But if I sort of step outside that, I don't see very much progress in the mechanisms that are going to make or allow 
any of this to exist. So uh, are these people, these imaginaries, these uh, you know, great engineers that are working out designs for all of this, are they ahead of their time? Are we technologically ready for this? Or um, you know, is this going to be a long, long time before the reality catches up with our dreams? Uh, I, my opinion is that the engineers and the scientists are on track. Uh, I think we know a lot about being on orbit, a lot about medical, psychological, what it's like on orbit. Uh, I can mention, if you want, the unique stressors of going to Mars because there, there's some added things we don't know about. Uh, but I think we're on track with Artemis, the way to go. I think politically we're behind. I think we're, we have not worked out the details of what's really going to be important now as we enter a new space race. Um, and with the Russians and the Chinese linking closer together, I think it's really important to work this thing out. I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that the first Mars mission will be um, international truly and will involve Chinese and uh, Russian participation as well as European, Japanese, and Canadian, and so on, uh, Americans. Um, I'm hopeful that will happen. Um, Right now, there's been pretty good cooperation between the American and Russian side. I mean, they're still sending cosmonauts and astronauts to the space station. But I'm a little bit distressed that this uh, war and the response to the war, the Ukraine, is pulling the Russians uh, away from the West more, and they're gravitating a little more to the Chinese. Uh, And I think the idea of the Space Force, all these things are complicating things because it's creating not only a competition economically, but a potential competition uh, in in a military way. So I, I, I think we need to reverse course and hopefully get back into a little more peaceful, cooperative uh, mentality. We're behind in that regard. This reminds me of uh, the space race, and I was around during the space race. And, you know, I think we went to the moon because we want to beat the Russians. And kind of now we want to go back to the moon because we want to beat the Chinese. I mean, it's really a very... Not a good reason to do it, but that's the, our reality. So I think our, our political situation is behind and uh, threatening. I think scientifically, uh, engineering-wise, there's exciting things happening. Uh, I'm very bullish on these things. I think we're solving problems. I think we understand the medical issues better on orbit. We have a few more tickles, uh because Mars has to deal with psychologically anyway, uh, but I think we're on track there. Um, listeners, you can give us a call. Our toll-free line is available for those of you who would like to call, one 867 We'd love to hear from you, but uh, email is also still available, Dr. Space, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com. But phone calls are a lot more important, a lot more interesting, listeners. Um, I have a question for you. Um, Mars is a is a different animal because of the time it takes to go there, the, the signal delays, the things that you talked a little bit uh, also. But the psychiatric issues 
are different. I remember many, many years ago talking to one of my Russian counterparts when I was teaching at the University of North Dakota, Vadim Rigolov, and uh, he talked about the the issues on Mir with disassociating from Earth. Uh, the, the further they were in space and the further they were away from Earth and they uh, suspected that would be a huge issue going to Mars. I think there's, isn't there a word for that? I'm probably going to mispronounce it, but asthenization or something like that, um, where you're, you're really disassociated from, from Earth and then everything starts to go, ahead, go to hell emotionally and psychiatrically. And that's probably on a Mars trip, right? Well, the, the, you're raising uh, uh, two issues. Uh, Asthenization can occur on orbit. Uh, Asthenization uh, is a term that the Russians uh, have used for uh, behavior on some of their cosmonauts. Uh, and it comes from the old neurotic uh, psychasthenia diagnosis that actually was at one time thought to be a unique American experience due to expanding into the West. And neurasthenia was thought to be you're expanding from the East into the, the West in the 1800s, and you're getting used to new social structures, and you're leaving your old social structures. And you have a lot of work to do, a lot of stress. You get fatigued, you get pooped out, uh, you get depressed, and it leads to anxiety. And that's neurasthenia. Freud talked about it. Even though it began as a Western construct, it's disappeared in the Western psychiatric literature because the, the neuroses have been redefined, uh, uh, and in the current psychiatric nomenclature are not diagnosed separately. They're in footnotes. But um, neurasthenia is now... Oh, it's sort of under chronic depression or chronic fatigue syndrome, things like that. The essence of neurasthenia is fatigue. Fatigue from overstress, kind of pooping out. Well, the Russians see that in their cosmonauts. I was told by one flight surgeon uh, that about half the cosmonauts, they go through some kind of neurasthenic or asthenization. They don't like the word neurasthenia because they don't see it as a neurotic condition. They see it as a stress adaptation condition. Uh, and so they see a lot of their cosmonauts, maybe a half, they get sort of dysphoric, they get depressed, they get um, fatigue, that's the essence of it. They have physiological changes, the heart changes, beats differently, they have maybe erratic beats, um, they don't sleep well. So the, the cure for that, if you will, is basically stimulation, they send up surprise presents on their resupply ships, they haven't talked to their family more, they haven't talked to the uh, famous movie stars and politicians to kind of stimulate them and get them uh, out of their funk. And it seems to work. So, aesthetization is, a, if you will, an adaptation to being in space, whether you're going to Mars or whatever. Often early in the mission, but not always. Okay, so that's one issue. Uh, we have the same thing in the American Western program. We just don't call it or conceptualize it as aesthetization. It's, uh, it's a stress adaptation or uh, acute stress reaction. Those are the terms we use. But the idea is the same. They get stressed out. It's new. They don't know what to do. They may get depressed. And so you treat it with family, counseling, and maybe medication. Uh, Mars has a unique set of stressors, though. Uh, Mars is, is a long way off. We're talking about a two- to two-and-a-half-year mission. 
you're really far off, and because of the distance to Mars, you're going to have a time delay in your communication, and that is really important. Uh, on average, about uh, two-way communication, you ask a question, uh, you know, you call up and you want to talk to your son or your daughter, and you say, hello, how are you? And then you wait about 25 minutes later, you get an answer. So that is not conducive to um, um, support, a lot of in-time support. Or you have a fire, you have a, a medical emergency on Mars. Uh, you can't necessarily have a surgeon on Earth walk you through the surgical procedure while you're doing it because of the time delay. So time delay, the, the, the distance creates new stressors that are really troublesome. The biggest one, in my view, the biggest showstopper is communication delay. There are other things that occur. You're far away. You can't depend on Right now, mission control interacts a lot with uh with the people on orbit. They, the communication, they send up certain activities for them to do. There's a lot of give and take in real time. It takes about two minutes, second or two for a communication to go from the Earth to the moon. Um, but the crews are going to be more autonomous on a long-term mission to Mars, and they're going to have to design their own schedule. They're going to have to take care of their own medical emergencies. So autonomy is going to be increased. Uh, we don't know about the effects of increased autonomy either, uh, and performance uh, on, on people on Mars. People are going to be more dependent on technical resources. They're going to be more uh, dependent on robotics or AI or uh, uh, machinery to take care of their basic um, needs, oxygen, carbon dioxide management, things like that. So there will be more of a, of a, of a human-machine interaction uh, on a Mars space. Really increase isolation and monotony. I mean, it's going to be you and the people you're with, and that's your whole existence. It's going to be hard to feel that you have much of more of a social interaction uh, going to Mars. Right now, the plan is to send four people. Well, that's not many people. Um, you're going to get, how are you going to do with the same four people for two and a half years? And finally, Dietrich uh, uh, Manzi and I have, have, have promulgated a term, uh, Earth Out of View Phenomenon, here, uh, if you look up at the sky and you see Mars or Jupiter, they're insignificant dots in the heaven. They look a lot like stars. Well, that's how the Earth is going to look from Mars. It's going to be an insignificant bluish uh, star-like object way far away. Right now, you look at the moon from uh, uh, the Earth from the moon. It's a beautiful orb. You can see the clouds. You can make out features. You have a connection with the Earth. You don't have much of a connection on Mars. Not only can't you talk to your family, friends, and mission control in real time, but you can't even see them as real entities. All you see is a little dot. Well, no one's really experienced that kind of distancing before. Um, you're going to have a disappearing Earth as you go out farther and farther towards Mars, away from the Earth, and then it's going to be almost out of view when you're on the surface of Mars. How is that going to affect you psychologically? So we have a number of stressors, autonomy, communication delays, more dependence on, on technical resources, so increase, really increase isolation, and this disappearing Earth out of view phenomenon um, that are going to affect the crews. So it's time to start looking at some of these factors uh, and start researching them in preparation. A good way to do that, of course, is in Artemis, 
is to use the moon as a simulation for being on Mars. So you could send a crew, for example, to the Gateway, the space station rotating the moon, have them hang out for seven months simulating a Mars trip, then have them land on the moon, have them simulate being on Mars. Uh, the gravity is different. You have a sixth gravity versus 38%, but nevertheless, you have low gravity on a real hard surface. You can simulate being on Mars uh, using the moon, and then have them go back to Gateway for another six, seven months simulating the return. So that's one way of simulating a Mars mission using uh, the Artemis program and a lunar uh, landing. Um, we, we hear all the talk about Artemis is, is, is planning to uh, shape us into, uh, put us in shape to go to Mars. It's the precursor to Mars. Are you seeing anything like that actually happening with Artemis, or is it too early? Uh, yes, we. I, uh, I withheld the printing of my book uh, until uh, the return of Artemis One because I wanted to include it in the book. So uh, Artemis One was a successful launch uh, last November. Uh, returned in December. Uh, the, it tested the rocket. It was called the SLS Block One, um, which was the big rocket system to launch a basically a big, big Apollo kind of container called uh, the Orion capsule. So it launched the Orion uh, into space. The Orion separated, went uh, automatically out to the moon, circled around the moon, and came back and landed on Earth uh, without a crew. So the equipment was tested in Artemis One, and it was a success. Uh, it, so we have now passed that milestone of testing the rocket system and the crew capsule system successfully at the end of last year. Artemis Two is set to launch no sooner than 2024. Now, these things get delayed from time to time, so it's hard to say. But right now it's scheduled for uh, end of this year, but probably no, probably next year. Uh, and that will fly people now, four of them, around the moon and return to Earth. So in a way, just like we had Apollo, one of the early Apollo missions went around the moon and did land to test how people could do uh, going to the moon. Uh, similarly, this Artemis II will launch people around the moon and back to test the crewed mission. Artemis III, which will launch no sooner than 2025, will send four astronauts again to the moon, but in this case, two will actually land. Um, there will be uh, uh, vehicles in orbit around the moon. They haven't built gateway yet, but there will be vehicles that will they can transfer and then go down to the moon's surface, probably one of the SpaceX variants. SpaceX is partnering with NASA right now to supply the lander for the moon. Uh, and that flight is to include a woman and a person of color. So of the two astronauts in some kind of a combination, there will be a woman and a person of color involved uh, in that landing be the first uh, time that we have sent uh, a female landing on the moon um, uh, for that Artemis three mission. Artemis four will be about a year later. Uh, it will not be a lunar lander. Uh, the purpose of Artemis four will be to help finish the construction of the Gateway space station, which will be an orbiting space station transfer vehicle around around the moon uh, in preparation for future missions. Uh, so the astronauts there will help construct, put together the module. They'll be in orbit already to make the gateway a functioning uh, entity. Artemis 5 
It will be uh, sometime a year later or two after that, maybe around 2027, 28, and that will launch four astronauts to Gateway, and, and they will then go from there down to the moon uh, for about a week, two of them, and two will stay in Gateway. And then finally, later Artemis missions will then go back and forth between the Earth and Gateway, and then from Gateway down to the moon for maybe one month to two months to set the base camp. Uh, you have a caller wanting to talk to you. Uh, good afternoon, caller. Who are you? Where are you? Please, thank you for your call. Uh, this is Dr. Sherry Bell. I'm in Las Vegas. Hi, Sherry. How are you doing today? Uh-huh. Hello. Good. How about you? Hi, Nick. How are you doing? Pretty good. How are you? Good, good. Well, there, well, there are several little things I want to talk to you about. One was I, uh, I ran a track at the ISDC this year. And it was absolutely wonderful to see some of the psychological research that's being done. Some of these ideas I proposed like 20 years ago when I was just absolutely poo-pooed. And now serious research is being done. So, for example, some to do with music and the effects of different music on different attitudes and how, let's say, it could be used to, to calm situation. So it could be used in that sort of uh, way or simply for entertainment individually, but group-wise also a little bit of research is being done on that. Some research is being done on lighting conditions. So, you know, from blue light, from from that bright, you know, 5,000 ice blue light to the warm, warm, I think that probably goes down to 2,300 the warm white lights and what effect that has on people and the moods and the so forth and so on. That was one of my favorite ideas about 20 years ago. and I could find no one that had any interest whatsoever. I needed funding, you know. So um, I think there's kind of like two or three parts here. One thing, do you cover anything like that in your book? Uh, Yes, I have a section on habitability. Uh, you talk a little bit about the habitats and what makes for a better habitat or a worse habitat. And I agree with you. I think lighting and music have been really important. You know, the Russians have been doing this. The Russians were uh, really got a good jump start because they had the first space stations going up. And they were sending up, uh, you know, I, I didn't mention the, the sanitation. One of the, the things they would do, not only send up presents, but they would encourage the astronauts to, to change their lighting and to play music and all that stuff um, as a way of, of uh, helping to give them more support. So I agree. Yeah. There is absolutely right. There is research being done now on lighting and the effect of lighting. It's being done in the context more of sleep. I have some of that re- reviewed in my book. Um, how do you get people to sleep under a normal kind of sleep pattern uh, where you, know, you, you by by regulating the light on board? But there is a lot right. of interest in that and research being done on not so much on music maybe, but on lighting for sure. Right, the, the music was just a barely, barely being touched. And, I, and so, you know, I know the Russians are ahead of us on that, and yet we accuse the Russians of being inhumane, more inhumane than we are. I go figure. But anyway, <laughs> I don't understand. Well, those me about that. Sort of I, I think <laughs> contradict. the Russians were, were really in advance of everybody uh, on the psychological support. 
And the yeah. stereotypes, they were, uh, I, I had the pleasure in our studies, both of them were international studies. They were funded by NASA, but we had encouraged to get Russian co-investigators, and we had Russian uh, participation uh, co-investigating team with our team in both Amir and the ISS. And they were wonderful to work with, and I was really struck by how uh, caring and interested they were in their cosmonauts and in supporting them. Uh, and they wow. were a lot of, as we evolved and got our own space station experiences in, in other Western countries, a lot of the modeling that was done, I think, started with what the Russians were doing. Sure, yeah, they were definitely the pioneering, you know, the more pioneering. Uh, so, okay, uh, let's see. How are sales going on your book? Uh, Oh, it just came out. I mean, it's been about the two okay. months, so I, I see that right now. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. Just curious about that, you know. I did I did take a look, and it does definitely look, have a textbook, you know. Uh, so, and uh, what is the price? It's like $160. Oh, no, no. I, um, I, you know, a lot of the pictures in the book are photographs from NASA or uh, things like that. So I was able to keep the cost down, even though it's a very nice hardback. It's, it's um, I don't know what it's selling for now. It came out at $99, and I think it dipped it down on Amazon to 89 or 80-something. 80 so that's the price right. right now. I don't know what it's getting it directly from Springer. It may be a little bit different from Springer, but uh, yeah. you can get under $100 easily enough. Okay, yeah, right. I was just curious about it because when I saw it, it was certainly higher than most most Facebooks, you know. So I was like, okay. Then I looked at it and I realized, oh, this is meant to be a college textbook. So what? Yeah, I think, I think it's readable. I, 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 what I tell people is that it's, um, you know, it's formatted as a textbook because it's got, you know, I have summaries of every chapter in the back and points to remember. Right. So you can look at that. And yeah. But. Um, and it's formatted as a little table contest before every chapter. But I, I think it's written that I think mainly I think most of the listeners to this station are going to be able to find it fine. Uh, uh, I mean, it's kind oh, of yeah. college, but I think it's oh yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's, I, yeah, it's not for Joe Sixpack, but these listeners will be able definitely will be able to appreciate it. So yeah, and and you know, if not, you can always get the humans in Facebook. It's it's also uh, you can check on Amazon if you want under my name. Uh, it's a it's a shorter version. It's older, but it has some of the same things. It's more something you might read it in a couple nights. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that I think that's most of what I wanted to say to you. Is I'm really look. The the research that's being done now is really really heartening. Hey, Sharon. Sherry. Sherry, yeah. why don't you yes. persuade Nick to be part of your track next year in Los Angeles at ISS? I think I, yeah, I invited him this year and he wasn't able to come, so I will. I'll invite him next year. We'll try it again. Yeah, COVID is still with us here. I'm still be careful where I go. I, I prefer Zoom, Zoom meetings these days, but anyway, it'll work. I know, I know, but the ISTC is, I, for some reason, they want it to be in person. They won't let anybody. They won't let names like Robert Zuber, and they won't let him zoom in. I think they wouldn't let Biden zoom in, and Biden wanted to zoom in. So I don't you know. <laughs> uh, 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 yeah, I wish they would, but they don't. So you'll have to come in first, and if you want to come. <laughs> so. uh, all right. <laughs> 
Okay. I look forward to meeting you. you someday. Thank you very much for your call, Thank you. Sherry. Uh, uh, but, thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, listeners, you can... Uh, you know, I think said, uh, about something she said about the, the changes over time. Uh-huh. When we did our study, uh, the, the astronauts and cosmonauts were very suspicious of uh, psychologists and never mind psychiatrists, which I am. And uh, they didn't like, you know, they were always, because psychologists and psychiatrists can ground them, basically. And now we were a research team. We were not operations, so we had no power to do anything. But we had to take special precautions to do our studies. We had to agree not to um, uh, not to publish anything before we studied five missions, so no one would be recognized. We had to agree to not have any names. Or we, we were interested in group level findings, you know, summaries, not individual findings. So, so we didn't publish any of that. And so. Uh, Things are very touchy. Um, zooming ahead 20 years, I met with some some astronauts. Now the team had changed. There were not so many test pilots. There were more doctors involved, scientists involved, engineers were going up into space. And they said, why don't you do more psychological personal studies on us? And I think because nobody would assign to be in the study. Um, and so times have changed. I think the astronaut corps, is more uh, uh, more open to these kinds of sensitive psychological studies than they used to be. Uh, there certainly is more collaboration, uh, and uh, I think it's a good thing. We were very careful. I think we had the first and the second extramural studies that were funded by NASA that weren't done within the agency that were psychological. And so we had to be very cautious in what we did and careful. Uh, I think science uh, have changed and there's more openness and interest on the part of everybody at NASA because of the long-duration missions that are being planned in the future. Did you have any discussions or have an opportunity to work with private astronauts, and is there any difference there, or you haven't had that opportunity yet? Uh, I've done a little bit of consulting uh, with one of the companies uh, about uh, about their program, and 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 they, they wanted some thoughts about how to how to uh, maybe construct habitat and so on. So I haven't had that experience. I haven't spoken directly with a person who's gone up and come back, uh, but I have been involved with with this one company uh, to sort of give them some advice and thoughts based on what we know on the uh, the. Uh, uh, space research and, and other work we've done with the agencies. Uh, listeners, our toll-free line is available. There's still time in the discussion today. If you would like to call us, 866-687-7223 is our toll-free number. Uh, Rod is in Denver, Colorado. And Rod said, everybody always wonders what kind of life support, psych- psychological conditioning support will be available on SpaceX Mars flights, Mr. Musk seldom, if ever, talks about life support, certainly not crew or psychological or behavioral support. Do you have any knowledge about that? Have you ever talked to anyone from SpaceX? Can you Uh shine a light on it? Uh, well, again, I have talked to some. I, I can't say the private agency because I signed non-disclosure. Okay. I, I have spoken with one agency about their plans down the future, uh, for uh, but not going to Mars, but for intermediate missions. So, again, there is interest. Uh, I think up to date, the interest has been shorter-term suborbital, which is not much to worry about. 
but there are more and more of the private companies, is my impression, uh, as well as the space agencies are interested in support over the long haul. Uh, I kind of have a, a couple of ideas about it. We've, uh, we've written about um, the, the, for example, the most pleasurable thing, we did a study of positive effects of being in space. People always say you're a psychiatrist, you never do positive things. Well, yeah, we studied positive. What, what do people like? And we found in our surveys of people that flown in space that the, uh, of many, many factors, the number one positive experience they have, uh, they have, they had going into space was seeing the Earth. Uh, it gives us the whole idea of, of the overview phenomenon that's been written about and the impact of the Earth from space on the consciousness of people and the spirituality issues. Um, in our studies, we found that astronauts, some astronauts go up and they interpret the beauty of the Earth as God's creation, Allah's creation, as uh, in spiritual terms. Other astronauts are more humanistic, interpreted as one, one humankind where there's no national boundaries. But it, for either way, it's, it's positive and, and impactful. So what do you do when you take it away from Mars when you have an insignificant dot to heaven? So one possibility is you use telescopes. Uh, you somehow filter it in to uh, allow them to see the Earth. Uh, uh, yeah, there's a little bit of a time delay because the speed of light, you're going to be, you know, 20 minutes, uh, 20 minutes, uh, you're going to see Earth 20 minutes ago. Nevertheless, it can remind them of home. Uh, there are people doing research now on how to t- take care of delayed communication. Um, Kathy Unger uh, uh, is doing some of this work, and uh, they're, they're, uh, they're looking at um, how do you compensate for the time delay? What do you do to help people do it? Uh, and the, the, uh, one of the, the, the ways to do it is they call it braiding. Um, and what that is is that you, you set up a, a, a scheme where uh, I send a message about a topic back home, and then I have the second message, and then the, third, and the second topic, and the third topic, and the fourth topic. By the time the first topic reaches, somebody responds back to it, and that's coming back to me as long as when maybe on the fifth topic. And so, as soon as I'm done, I get response to the first topic. So it seems like I'm in continuous communication with people on Earth, and they're doing some very very interesting research on on this um, to try to compensate the time delay and to help people feel more that they're in real time with people. Uh, so that's one of the things that's going on that's, that's pretty good. Um, another thing is that we are recommending that uh, crews be trained to self-monitor their interactions. So they may be set a, 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 an hour a week on Mars and to talk only about how they're getting along with each other what kind of stress that they might be having, and how can we deal with it now that we're calm, having coffee and relaxed, uh, before things fester and build and we start having problems with each other. So this kind of bull session where they uh, talk and, 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 and the, the, the task of that hour is to deal with interpersonal issues that uh, could become problems that aren't personalized but may be part of the system of being uh, located uh, on there. So... Um, we recommend that that, that is another uh, way of of uh, doing it. Uh, so training them to self-monitor and be more autonomous 
in dealing with psychological and interpersonal issues. Uh, I mentioned the Brady, by the way, I misquoted. It's actually Fisher and Mosier, as I just thought about it, was doing this research. Uh, Fisher, I think, the Georgia Tech, and Mosier's at uh, uh, San Francisco State. They're doing a lot of work on uh, dealing with time delays and coping with the time delay. Uh, and so that, that's a very interesting and promising area of research. Uh, you have another caller wanting to talk with you. Good afternoon, caller. Welcome to our program. Who are you? Where are you, please? Uh, this is Marshall in usual place. Oh. And uh, my question is, uh, what kind of personalities are best uh, at going into space? Now, most of the early people were like test pilots and, uh, you know, very military, rock-hard personalities, uh, go-getters, uh, overachievers, etc. And uh, the people that are going now are more um, college intellectual types. Uh, who adjusts better? And does, is that part of the selection system? Um, the selection, you're right, uh, absolutely right. The, the early selection was pretty much uh, the right stuff type people, mainly test pilots, um, and the missions were shorter, and there was more unknowns about could we even survive in space. Uh, now the crews are very heterogeneous. Uh, we have men and women. We've got people from different cultures going up. One of the issues is to identify in a given crew which cultural mix you have and to look at cultural variations. Uh, for example, maybe some people from the Mediterranean cultures are more used to being close to each other and gesticulating when they talk. People from Northern Europe might be a little more reserved and farther away or from Japan. Uh, and so they're not quite as – so you have to understand your cultural grouping and uh, what people might be influenced and comfortable in doing. Uh, so those are all important factors because the crews are heterogeneous. You've still got your pilots, but you also got your scientists. you got your engineers. You got men, you got women, uh, and so how do you select them? Well, it, there's two ways of doing it. There's select out and select in. Select out means who don't you let into the astronaut corps. You don't let certain people in because of certain psychological profiles or maybe family histories of, of uh, psychotic illnesses or uh, maybe uh, sociopathic tendencies or a number of areas that people are selected out. Selecting in is more complicated. There has not really been a clear-cut select-in procedure, 100% accurate, where this person is going to be the number one great super astronaut. Um, some people are selected in that you think would be the top person, and they may be good. Some people you select in that on the psychological testing look kind of okay that become stars. So you can't ever predict it 100%. Uh, people continually are looking for ways of selecting in and how do you select people to be astronauts. Uh, and by and large, it's been successful uh, because we've had pretty good track records. Um, the, the, the bottom line is you want a person has two major qualities. They have to be able to work alone, autonomously on a topic that's related to their duties, and they want, should be able to socialize and get along with other people when appropriate, like at mealtimes. So you want to have not introverts, not extroverts, but kind of in between. People that can work alone, that aren't only dependent on other people, but that can relate to other people 
as well when the need be, like at parties and meals. So that's your ideal person. How do you select the crew? The crew is more complicated because there's a number of factors in dealing with the crew. Who's gone out before? Who has the relevant social skills for that particular mission? Is it going to be an engineering mission? Is it going to be mainly a mission of science? What are you going to select for? And so you have to select that. Plus, in a complicated, expensive mission like going to Mars, I would suspect that people that are paying for it are going to have a say on who gets selected. So if you've got a mission going to Mars that's very expensive and you've got um, a European Space Agency funding a good part of it, they're going to want a European Space Agency representative in the crew. So you're going to have mixtures not only on who makes the, is the best mix of skills, but who's coming from the right countries that are paying for it. Uh, you're going to want men and women. You're going to, uh, I would think, on the first mission to Mars. Um, you're going to want to have people of mixed uh, skill levels that can be cross-trained with each other. And so what they do is they put together the best crew they can on all these factors. Then they train them for a year, year and a half on the ground in a number of simulations and see how they do. So if the crew gels, gets along, can do the mission together and do the task, then they're, they're set up. Uh, so a lot of it's on-the-job training. Once you select what you think is the best crew, given all these factors, then you watch them in operation on the ground uh, and see how they do. And if they do well, then up they go. Uh, one of the things I also notice is uh, almost everybody that's gone to space has been on the old side, and it's going to be very interesting to uh, take young people and send them to space uh, because they don't have a track record. Uh, I would expect that to be a really difficult task. Well, they are, they are moving younger people into uh, uh, more known missions. I think... Some of your, your, your newbies, your new astronauts in the new training groups that are younger might go up on orbit and then they may would go up and visit the space station and come back. I don't expect that the first Mars mission is going to have a lot of inexperienced people. I don't know about the age group, but if you've got a particular skill set that only a few people can do and they happen to be younger, they'll go up. But uh, I think it's going to be more people with, who've been up in space before, maybe on orbit before, who've got good track records, uh, who have the right skill sets, the right geology, the right biology, the right medical, the right engineering, you know, who can do the job. Uh, and then, as I said, you're going to mix them a little bit with who's paying for it and, and trying to mix the demographics a bit. Um, but I would think that the first mission to Mars is going to be a little more experienced group because uh, so it's untested and you want to see how it goes. Maybe later missions would then go with newer people who aren't so experienced and maybe younger. Mm. Uh, that's, uh, that's enough for today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marshall. You're welcome. Bye. Thanks for calling. Bye, man. Uh, Nick, I know you have a hard break uh, at 90 minutes, so we're almost there. Uh, have we omitted something you wanted to talk about? Any conclusion you want to give us in the few remaining moments? Uh, I think so. I think we've covered a lot. I certainly appreciate the callers and your uh, uh, questions. It, it is very thoughtful, uh, very interesting. Um, I don't have a whole lot to say. I, I mean, I'm 
a big fan of of, of uh, cooperation among the different countries. And I, I would really, I'm saddened by what's going on now with the war and with the uh, the separation. I have, uh, I, I, I have friends in the Russian space program. And they uh, are wonderful people. And, and the astronauts, I think, at the level of the astronauts and cosmonauts, my impression is they get along very well. They almost have their own separate community. Uh, I've had great, uh, great times. <laughs> I remember one time the first mission we did, the, the, we did some training in Moscow, uh, and uh, I went to my debriefing, and the cosmonaut chief, we weren't sure how they were going to react. It's our first time. The cosmonaut said to me, uh, I said, well, do you have any questions about what's, what's going to happen? And he said, yes. He says, Dr. Kahn, he said, uh, I know what you're doing. You're trying to find the crazy cosmonauts. <laughs> we all sort of like, everyone sort of looked around like, oh, my God, you know, what does this mean? Or what is he saying? And he looked at us and he said, and he laughed, he said, just kidding. <laughs> so it, I think, you know, at the level of the astronauts and cosmonauts, there's great humor and I think great cooperation. And I would hope in the future, my last comment is uh, going to Mars, I would hope it would be a more cooperative a multinational. I mean, I've done some lectures in China, and I think the same at the level of the people working in the in the people. There's a lot of cooperation and a desire to cooperate. I hope the politics will be worked out better, uh, and that in when the time comes time for Mars, it will be a cooperative uh, mission. Uh, I want to thank you for returning to the space show, and uh, hopefully you will be at ISBC, and uh, a lot of us will get to meet you in person for the first time. And uh, when you have some more interesting material or uh, when you want to come back and talk to us some more, let me know and we'll do it, and I look forward to it. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Nick. And for those of you who emailed us and called in, thank you very much as well. Uh, remember our schedule. It's all up on the Space Show websites if you don't remember it. And uh, goodbye from Nick David and the Space Show. And everybody, do keep looking up. And one more thing, uh, even though I've said goodbye, is to tell you um, that our sponsors do have uh, great messages. Uh, so like AIAA is uh, the world's largest aerospace and professional Society, They've got, I don't know, upwards of 30,000 or more uh, people that are members in most countries around the world, corporate members. And uh, most of the missions we talk about have AIAA people working with them. Northrop Grumman is a sponsor. They're a leading global security company and space company for both government and the private sector on uh, everything you can imagine from undersea, space, cyberspace, uh, and we're great to, uh, to have them as a, as a sponsor. And then all of you know about Celestis. If uh, you want to have a memorial space flight, they're the company to go to. And uh, that moon trip that's coming up on the Vulcan, as I've said many, many times, Mom and two of my dogs are on that. But I uh, managed to get my mom and dogs to space many times on uh, Celestis. They're a great company to deal with. The Space Foundation uh, is a terrific uh, thing with their big symposium every March, April. Uh, it's not like a normal conference, and uh, you'll meet people from all over the world. 
very, very high-level people. And uh, it's an experience. If you have never done it, you should do it. But they also publish great economic papers and other things for both commercial and traditional states. Uh, Astrox is all about um, hypersonics and research. And he, he does work with the Air Force and DARPA. So, um, and then Dr. Benaroya and the National Space Society that we've been talking about during this show. So um, we thank those sponsors, and if you're interested, email me at drspace at thespaceshow.com. Once again, goodbye from Nick, David, and The Space Show. Everyone have a great rest of the weekend and a terrific week coming up.